Tonight, another cold case from the Metro Police Homicide File. It's a murder from 1973. The longer a case goes cold, the harder it is to solve. Maybe if it was solved, if they could find out who did it, um, it would help. We're hoping that someone saw something, knows something, remembers something that might help us finally find justice for. Welcome to the Searching for Closure podcast, a real-time investigative podcast looking into the 1973 unsolved homicide of Tina Davison. I'm Sean McGregor. On the last episode, I dove deep into the occult world of magic and satanic ritual sacrifice. I tried to interview an author who claims to have been possessed by Tina's spirit and helped her cross over to the other side. According to that author, he did not believe that Tina knew her killer. She apparently told him this herself before stepping into the light and transcending into the veil. She told him she had been hitchhiking in the area and was picked up by this man, uh, one in a million chance, since if anyone else had been picked up or if she'd been delayed or not there, someone else might have died. She said that she did not know who killed her, but released from the cares and worries of life, she did not want to dwell on it. So, if it wasn't the satanic punks that her friends thought killed her, then who was it? Our investigation takes us to the night of Halloween, 1973, in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, an hour and a half north of Racine. Nine-year-old Lisa French stepped off her front porch for what should have been a fun autumn evening of trick-or-treating. She wanted to wear a cute little butterfly costume, but her mother decided against that idea. Even midday was cold in that part of Wisconsin in October. Instead of a butterfly, Lisa went as a hobo. Lisa was in the fourth grade and had deep brown eyes. Her mother had cut her brown hair into a trendy shag, and her smile revealed new teeth growing in as seen in her class photo from that year. Fond du Lac was an average, blue-collar neighborhood in northeast Wisconsin, with tree-lined sidewalks scattered in fall leaves. Porch lights had been turned on, and candy dishes were waiting by the doorways. Back in 1973, kids trick-or-treated after dark on Halloween, and Lisa was eager to get started after finishing her dinner. She kissed her parents goodbye and quickly ran out of her house, just before 6 p.m. Her costume consisted of jeans covered in masking tape, a floppy felt hat, and a green coat. Her mother had dotted her face with freckles. She was on her way to her friend's house for a night of trick-or-treating. On her way, she decided to stop at a few houses to get a little extra candy. The last door she would knock on would be the home of Gerald Turner. The front door had been left partially open, and Lisa peeked inside. She called out in her little nine-year-old voice, Trick or treat! As Turner stepped into the room, Turner invited Lisa in and lured her into his bedroom. There, he raped and strangled the child to death before scooping her lifeless body and clothing into several trash bags. For four days, the entire town looked for Lisa. A search party of 1,500 volunteers combed through the woods, 
parks and fields. Police also assisted in the search effort by knocking on every door in the neighborhood, hoping that neighbors had witnessed something that may offer a clue into the whereabouts of little Lisa French. It was during these door-to-door neighborhood interviews that investigators came across Gerald Turner. Turner, who had previously been charged with a sexual molestation crime involving a 15-year-old babysitter, but was never prosecuted, therefore allowing him to roam free, provided police with information on what he had been doing Halloween night. Turner's story didn't quite sit well with investigators, however, and they felt that there were certain discrepancies within the details that immediately set off red flags. On November 4th, 1973, the search came to a tragic end. A farmer had found trash bags containing the nude body of a child on his property and instantly alerted the police. The child was Lisa French. Though investigators already had Turner pegged as a possible suspect, he wouldn't be officially taken in for questioning until March of 1974. Again, police asked Turner what he was doing Halloween night around the time Lisa French had disappeared. Turner's story contradicted some of the details within the original story he had told police days after Lisa's disappearance. The following month, investigators requested that Turner come down to the police station for a formal interview. Again, some of the details Turner told police about that Halloween night contradicted details he had given in earlier interviews. His lies were becoming more and more apparent. Turner also agreed to provide investigators samples of his hair, as well as fibers from a bedspread he had in his home. Investigators were able to have the hairs and fibers compared to those pulled off of Lisa's body, and they were found to have been a match. Police returned to Turner's residence after the tests were concluded in the fall of 1974 in order to be interviewed again on the case. Turner was asked to take a polygraph regarding his recollection of events that transpired that evening, but Turner refused. Before I go on, I just want to give my opinion on polygraph tests. I personally don't believe in them. There's a reason why they aren't admissible in court. They simply aren't accurate. You can watch thousands of videos on YouTube on how to easily beat a lie detector. And who's to say how an innocent person would do on a lie detector? If you're completely innocent of a crime, but had police breathing down your neck and accusing you, interviewing you for hours, maybe even days and months, playing good cop and bad cop, I'm sure you'd be plenty nervous taking a polygraph. Maybe so nervous that you'd fail, even if you were 100% innocent. And if you refuse to take one for that very reason, well, that sure looks suspicious now, doesn't it? So after pressure from law enforcement, Turner reluctantly agreed to take the test. After analyzing the results, investigators were not completely satisfied, with many of the questions returning inconclusive results. Turner was asked to participate in a second polygraph, but he refused. It was during this time that Turner suggested to investigators that Lisa's death may have been an accident. This suggestion turned into a two-hour conversation where Turner admitted to seeing Lisa in the doorway, taking her into his bedroom, and brutally raping her. 
but Turner claimed that he had not strangled the girl. Rather, her death had been the result of shock brought on by the rape. Turner said he then dumped the girl's body and provided investigators with a map to indicate the approximate location he had left her. The same field Lisa's body had been recovered. The case that had left the Wisconsin town of Fond du Lac, as well as the nation, in a state of fear and disbelief, was finally solved. Turner was sentenced to 38 and a half years in prison for second-degree murder, sexual perversion, enticing a child for immoral purposes, and indecent behavior with the child. But he didn't even serve 20 years. He was paroled in 1992. During this time, however, Turner violated his parole. Within his possession was hardcore pornographic materials, movies on serial killers, and a letter he had written to his victim. It read, Dear Lisa, I doubt that I could ever fully realize the terror you experienced at my hands. For that night of the children to have started out so joyous for you, only to end so tragically, will haunt me forever. I can still see you standing in the doorway with that felt hat beaming at having recognized me. Then I see the delight in your eyes turn to fear as I close the door behind you. The rest of my life, I will have to live with what I did to you. On that night, I became a monster. I do swear to you, on my life, I will never harm another child. Turner headed back to prison. But, despite everything, Turner was paroled again in 1998, after a jury had determined that they didn't consider Turner to be sexually violent, which completely blows me away. I'm all for rehabilitation, but some monsters simply have no good inside of them. He returned to prison once again in 2003, after another parole violation for possessing and viewing hardcore pornographic materials in the halfway house that he was living in. Three women also testified that he raped them and beat them. A psychiatrist testified that there was 20% chance that Turner would commit another violent sex crime if he were released, which is pretty shocking considering his crimes and his parole violations. Even if it was only 20%, I believe that even a 1% chance is too big of a chance to take for the safety of children. Turner was sent back to prison, where he was ordered to remain for 15 years. In addition to the city of Fond du Lac, moving the trick-or-treat hours back to daylight hours, the Lisa French case inspired lawmakers to require sexual offenders to remain in jail until they are no longer considered to be a danger, which, in my opinion, is until they are no longer breathing. Once you cross that line and do what he did, there's no turning back. Once a monster, always a monster. 44 years after the murder of Lisa French, Gerald Turner had reached the end of his last 15 years. Known as the Halloween killer could soon be set free and there may be no way to stop it. Gerald Turner hits his mandatory release date in just 22 days. Other than registering as a sex offender, Turner would have no extended supervision and no parole or probation. In February of 2018, Turner had been moved to a supervised living facility in Juneau County, according to the Wisconsin Sex Offender Registry. 
Turner, who is now 68, is listed as being under supervision of the Department of Health Services and not the Department of Corrections. The state is fighting Turner's release, and the appeal is awaiting trial. Lisa's mother had started a petition, which I suggest everyone signs and supports. I'll post a link to this in the show notes and on our website, searchingforclosure.com. So far, they're about halfway towards their goal of 50,000 signatures. French's little sister, who is now an adult, is terrified Turner could be released on February 1st. He's not a safe person. As somebody that can think in that way and to do what he did, it's just scary. It's scary to have him be out. I really just pray that he changed and um, will not do this again. You know, I mean, I bet I guess that's all we can do is just pray. If released, Gerald Turner would have to register as a sex offender, report where he lives, and wear a GPS monitoring bracelet. But if he lives outside of the state of Wisconsin, that GPS bracelet would not be required. Reporting live in the newsroom, Julia Fellow, today's TMJ4. All right, Julia, thanks. The time frame in which this murder happened really stood out to me in regards to Tina's case. Gerald Turner killed Lisa French on Halloween of 1973. That's eight months after Tina was murdered. Fondelac isn't all that far from Racine either. One could easily drive down to Racine, commit a murder, and get back home in a matter of like four hours total. But besides the time period, there aren't many other similarities. Lisa French was a crime of convenience. One can't say if Turner left the door open as a ploy to lure a child into his home on that Halloween evening, or if everything just fell into place for the perfect storm. If Lisa had skipped Turner's home that evening, it's more than likely she would still be alive today. And if Turner had closed his door completely, or if he had went out to dinner or to a movie instead of being home, would he have committed such a heinous act? Judging by what he did when he was out on parole, I believe that Turner would have done something similar eventually. It was only a matter of time before His inner demons broke through. The only resemblance Lisa and Tina had was that they were both small with dark hair. Otherwise, there was a pretty big age gap. Lisa was only nine. Tina was days away from turning 16. Also, Lisa was raped and strangled. Her body discarded in trash bags. Tina was stabbed 61 times, and despite her body being found nude, It was not sexually assaulted, from what I've been told. Disposing of a body in trash bags shows that you don't want the body to be found. You're trying to hide it. Leaving a body near a beach could show that you are trying to hide it, somewhat. You moved it away from where the murder actually happened. So you're trying to hide that fact, but it also shows that you really don't care at all. Some people claim Tina's body was put on display to serve as a warning or a sign. But in my own opinion, I see it slightly different. I see it casually discarded. If this was a random attack, then the attacker would not have known Tina or cared about her at all. So why not just dump it in a random place off to the side so it won't be found until the next morning? More than enough time for the killer to get home. Whether that home was Racine, Fond du Lac, Kenosha, or some other place, we simply don't know. The method of disposal is more reminiscent of Stephanie Kasberg. I told the story of how her dismembered body 
was scattered along Root River on the border of Racine and Franklin in July of 1969. But Lisa French's body wasn't dismembered. Of course, a nine-year-old is much smaller than a teenager. A nine-year-old can most likely easily fit into a garbage bag, but a teenager would need to be cut into smaller pieces. I don't believe that the murder of Lisa French is related to the Stephanie Kasberg case at all. It doesn't make sense for him to commit a murder on a 17-year-old girl almost two hours south of his home, spend time chopping it up and disposing of it over weeks, and then four years later he just grabs a nine-year-old girl and dumps her right near his own hometown. Strangulation and stabbing are two completely different methods of murder. When you strangle someone, you watch the life slip from their eyes. You feel their throat gasping for breath. It's an act of power. The killer is the dominant force. They are in control. It's a long, slow process. Strangulation isn't like they show in the movies. It it doesn't take 10 seconds to kill someone. Sometimes it takes well over 5 minutes. The BTK killer, he strangled numerous women. And multiple times he started to leave, thinking that they were dead only to quickly realize that they were still alive. He didn't know how long it took to strangle someone, and he only rendered them unconscious. Stabbing is a much more aggressive and rage-filled act. It's quick and deliberate. To stab someone 61 times takes an incredible inner hatred. A lot of people say that in order to stab someone that many times, the killer has to know the victim and feel a great animosity towards them. But that's not always the case. The Doodler is a prime example of this. He's an unidentified serial killer, believed responsible for 14 murders and three assaults of men in the gay community in San Francisco between January 1974 and September of 1975. The nickname was given to him because of his habit to draw the victims prior to their sexual encounters and stabbing them. Police believe he didn't know any of the victims, but he had that thing inside of him that would snap and break out and inflict as much brutal damage as possible. Such as William Devin Howell, an East Coast drifter who killed seven people inside his, quote, murder mobile, a van in which he lived out of in Connecticut in 2003. Howell told an inmate that he dreamed about his seven victims and the plot where they were buried. He also allegedly described himself as a, quote, sick ripper who had a monster inside of him that just came out. So do I believe that Gerald Turner had anything to do with Tina Davison's death? Originally, I thought maybe it's worth looking into, but now, no, I don't. I couldn't find any ties that he had to Racine at all. The method of murder does not line up. One was rape and strangulation. The other was excessive stabbing. Sometimes the killer will change up his pattern for murder slightly. These two do not fit even remotely. Murdering girls between the ages of 15 and 17 ties pretty well together. But to go from 15 down to only 9 years old... It's a pretty big gap. Some killers just kill for the sake of killing. 
They don't care if the target is 21 or 76. They just kill out of convenience. That's what I feel Lisa French's murder was. A convenient killing for Gerald Turner. There's a small chance that if Turner did in fact kill Tina, that maybe he tried to rape her, but he couldn't get turned on because of her age. That a 15-year-old was just too old for him. Until he met 9-year-old Lisa French, which fit what he really, truly wanted deep down inside of his dark soul. But that doesn't coincide with what he did on parole when he attacked and raped three women. Also, he possessed a large amount of hardcore pornography, so I don't believe that Turner was only turned on by children. Turner also doesn't fit the description of any of the people last seen with Tina. As much as I'd like to just pin this on Gerald Turner and keep him locked behind bars for the rest of his life, it's just not the case. Beside the fact that both murders happened in the same year, in the same state, and both involved girls under the age of 18, there's no pieces of this puzzle that fit together. There is, however, another convicted killer that has been stated as possibly being involved in Tina's death on multiple websites and message forums, and he lived a lot closer than Fond du Lac. On the next episode of Searching for Closure, the trail of speculation leads us a little further north to the town of Appleton. I'll be investigating the murder of an 18-year-old woman who was killed and discarded in a ditch in the town of Wapan. The murder happened two hours north of Racine and almost 20 years later, but the killer had ties to Racine and people have questions about his involvement. If you knew Tina or have any tips or clues regarding her unsolved murder, please contact me at info at searchingforclosure.com or participate in our Facebook group, which can be found at facebook.com slash groups slash searchingforclosure. Every time I post a new episode, I'll also be posting a new blog entry with notes, pictures, news articles, or videos. You can find all that at www.searchingforclosure.com. Please rate and review on iTunes and also don't forget to subscribe so that every time we have a new episode, you're alerted to it. Also, spread the word on Tina. Her case has remained unsolved for 45 years and deserves closure. Until next time, thank you for listening.